Hello and welcome to Asbury Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Divini. I am the lead pastor at Asbury. And uh, we hope that this podcast will uh, enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and that it will be at least a little bit entertaining for you. Um, we are going to be talking about 1 Corinthians today because uh, you will be reading 1 Corinthians this week if you are following along with our Bible reading plan, uh, which is what all the cool kids are doing, by the way. Um, you'll be starting, uh, if, you're, if you're following along with that plan, which again, you should be doing if you want me to like you, uh, it, 1 Corinthians will start on April the 20th. Now, the way that these reading plans for Paul's letters seem to be working is that for most of them, you start on the first day with the first chapter, just that one chapter. And then for the next several days, you read two chapters a day. Um, for 1 Corinthians, you'll read two chapters a day until you finish chapter 15, and then you will read chapter 16 by itself on April the 28th. So you'll be doing, uh, you'll be in 1 Corinthians for eight days. Uh, I will be preaching on 1 Corinthians this Sunday. Uh, if you're listening to this, and for some reason, and you are you are not a member of our church, one welcome. Uh, I don't know how you found this, or why you think it's worth listening to, because I'm baffled that my church thinks I'm worth listening to sometimes. But I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you find it useful, and you can find those sermons on our church's YouTube page, um, and on our Facebook page, and on our website. First Corinthians. Um, Let's talk a bit about the background here. Now, the city of Corinth is in Greece. And if you can picture a, a you know, map of Greece in your mind, you have sort of the mainland Greece, which is uh, in the, the northern part. And then you have the Peloponnese, which is this, the, this kind of really weird hand-shaped peninsula on, on the southwestern part of Greece. Uh, that's where the city of Sparta is, by the way. And they're connected by this very tiny, tiny little land bridge. So much so that like on a bigger map or even on a globe, you actually can't see it. It's that small, it's that short, and the, the, the um, you know, body of water on either side of it is extremely narrow. It's not like this is a big gap between the mainland and the peninsula. Um, and right on that tiny little strip of land... That's where the ancient city of Corinth was. This is historically significant because um, within you know, Greek culture and, and within Greek history, you have the two major superpowers of Athens and Sparta. Now, Athens is on the mainland. Sparta is on the Peloponnese. Corinth happens to guard the only land route in between them. Um, that's a major economic Point, and it's a major military point. And when Rome conquers Greece, they'll recognize that as well, but for a slightly different reason. Um, the trading routes from Rome to the eastern part of the empire go through Greece. Now there's a land road, which, which just kind of, it goes up from Rome... And it just goes through the Balkans until you get to um, 
where Constantinople would be. You've got that, that road that kind of crosses over the, the Dardanelles Straits, which lead into the Black Sea. It crosses over that into Turkey and goes down into the Middle East. That's the Via Media. Um, that's an important road. Paul, at one point, is traveling along that road. Um, that's where the, the city of Philippi is along that road. Hugely significant for um, the movement of armies. Very important military strategy there to get armies out from Rome into the eastern part of the empire. But there's a sea route, which is the more important economic route because it's faster to ship goods and food by sea. Now, the thing is, there's two important points here. Um, Rome could not feed itself. The city of Rome was so large that it could not feed its citizens. And you, they couldn't rely on the agricultural production of the rest of Italy because, one, those, the rest of Italy had to feed itself as well. Um, but also, you know, there, there's not a whole, if you look at the geography of Italy, there's not a whole lot of, like, really great flat ground for growing crops. And you need flat, fertile soil for growing crops. Italy is a great place for raising sheep. Um... Northern Italy has a lot of really big river valleys and fertile soil for growing crops like wheat and fruit and vegetables. Um, but the rest of Italy uh, just does not have the space or, the, or the, the landscape for growing the massive amount of food that is needed to feed the world's largest city in the ancient world. Not with their technology and their agricultural practices. It could not be done. So they have to import their grain. And it's mostly grain that they're importing because, of course, one, they grow their, they can, they can raise plenty of animals for livestock in Italy, but they need grain. Um, citizens of Rome were, were guaranteed free bread, uh, free grain, um, if you lived in Rome. Not, you know, Roman citizens like Paul who lived elsewhere, but people who lived in the city of Rome and were Roman citizens got free food uh, in the form of grain or bread. So they've got to import that from somewhere. And that somewhere happens to be, well, mostly Egypt. Some, to some extent, Israel as well. But Egypt is the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. There's two ways that you get grain shipped from Egypt to Rome. One is by land, which goes through Israel, or as they would call it back then, Palestine. Which is precisely why the Romans wanted to conquer that area in the first place. It's why they uh, take the Jewish revolts in that area so seriously and put them down so brutally because they are securing their food supply, hugely important. Um, it also comes by sea. And sometimes it's shipped directly from Egypt and sometimes it comes from ports along the coast of Israel. Um, but Egypt and that whole Middle Eastern area, that which we call the Fertile Crescent, um, and Israel has a lot of prime agricultural land, by the way, uh, that whole area is the breadbasket of the empire. Now, in order to ship food by sea from Egypt to Rome, you don't just go straight across the Mediterranean, not in the ancient world, because nobody sails across the open water in the ancient world. You follow the coastline. So, a ship carrying grain from Egypt to Rome would leave the port at Alexandria at the mouth of the Nile and immediately turn east until it hits the 
eastern shore of the Mediterranean, and then it would turn north until it hits the southern coast of Turkey, then it would go west into the Aegean Sea along the coast of Greece, Greece, and then and then it would get to Italy on the other side of the Adriatic. But it would first go up the eastern coast of the Adriatic, usually for a little bit before crossing and going over. Um, now, the reason that Corinth becomes so incredibly economically important in Rome is that it allows ships making that exact journey from the eastern part of the empire to Rome itself and back to, to cut several days off their trip because instead of sailing all the way around the southwestern corner of Greece, they can go to Corinth and just take a shortcut. So the city of Corinth has two ports, one on either side of that little isthmus of land that it sits on. And actually, in the modern world, there's a big canal that's been cut through it. Um, that that There were several attempts by Roman emperors to actually fund a project to do that. I don't remember if it ever actually got done, but, but in Paul's day, it hasn't been done. There's just two ports, one on either side. And with smaller ships, what they would do is they would land on one port, unload the cargo, and literally pick up the ship and just carry it overland to the other side and put it back in the water, reload the cargo, and sail on. Um, because a, a whole lot of their ships were actually designed with that function in mind. So they were rel relatively small and lightweight, which is also why they didn't sail in the open ocean. With larger ships, they would just stop at one port, unload their cargo. The cargo would be carried overland to the other port where a different ship would pick it up and carry it. Either way, it cuts the shipping time it takes days off the time it would take to ship that. And so it saves them money, it saves them time, huge economic benefit. Which means Corinth is a very, very busy port city. It's a very wealthy city. It's a very metropolitan, very diverse city with people from all over the world speaking all different languages, all different religious backgrounds. Um, and, and you can kind of think of it I mean, in, in that sense, it's almost like their version of New York City in terms of, of the, 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 the mashup of different cultures and the financial significance of it and, the, and, and all of that going on. It, it would be similar. Um, it doesn't quite hold the same place in, in their cultural mindset that New York does for us, but in terms of the makeup of the city, it would be kind of similar to that. Um, and so Paul spends 18 months in Corinth, and he's setting up like a series of these really small house churches throughout the city, um, which would periodically gather together as one big group in a wealthy person's home in order to uh, break bread together, to share a meal, build up their fellowship, um, celebrate communion, as we would call it now. And he wasn't alone in that work. He had helpers with him. He had Silas and Timothy as well as Priscilla and her husband. Um, and so he spends 18 months there. He leaves Corinth sometime in the year 51 AD. And this letter is written sometime between 53 and 55 AD, while Paul is in Ephesus, which is on the western coast of Turkey. And the Corinthians had sent Paul a letter asking them about several specific issues. We see that in uh, chapter 7, verse 1, where Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and then he quotes, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Um, I'll, I'll read on so that's not too confusing. <laughs> Paul responds, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, 
that's partly because there is this um, expectation still at this point that Jesus is coming back like tomorrow, and so we don't need to worry about living this life. We should just focus on um, preparing ourselves for the return of the Savior. Um, and so there is this mindset that, well, maybe we should just all be celibate. Um, maybe we, that way we can just focus on the work of the kingdom. And, and Paul kind of responds by saying, well, that's not going to work out so well for some of you because, frankly, some of you can't control yourselves and keep it in your pants. And if that's your problem, you should get married so that you have an outlet for those desires. Um, very practical man, Paul. Um, then you have here in, uh, he, so he spends, he will spend that whole chapter dealing with that issue. Then he gets to chapter 8. Um, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, and this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So what the, the issue here is that if you live in the Greco-Roman world, almost all of the meat that you can buy in a market is meat from animals that have been sacrificed to idols. Um, because people don't just slaughter livestock for, no, for, for food in that day. Livestock are expensive. Um... And they have other purposes, but you you need to you know, offer your sacrifices to the gods. So you take your pig, your cow, your chicken, um, mostly pigs for, for people in Greece it would have been. Um, and they go and they sacrifice them to the idol. And then so that it's not a waste, they take that meat and they sell it in the marketplace. Now, Jews would never buy that meat because it's been offered to idols. It's forbidden. One of the conflicts within the early church between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians is what to do if you can you eat meat or not. Because effectively, Jews outside of Palestine or Israel would have would have been largely vegetarian um, because they would not have been able to buy most of the they they would never be able to tell for sure if the meat in the marketplace was sacrificed to idols or not. Now, in some places, they would have set up their own Jewish marketplaces, and there they could go and they could buy meat, but they probably wouldn't have it very often. So, again, most of the Jews in the diaspora, meaning the Jews who live in the parts of the empire outside of Palestine, are, are going to be primarily vegetarian, maybe only having a lamb to eat uh, at the Passover. Um, the Gentile Christians think, well, that's dumb. We're not under the law. We can eat whatever we want. Um, and, and Paul will kind of give this really confusing response that not only in the letter to the Corinthians, but in other letters, because this is a common problem. And he kind of says, well, yeah, you know, you're, it's, it's fine. Nothing, these idols aren't real. So, you know, eat the meat if you want to eat the meat. Um, he does say, don't eat it in the temple, right? In other words, don't participate in a meal happening in these temples to false gods because that's demonic. And, and Paul very clearly believes, by the way, that the gods worshipped by the pagans are demons. Um, he, he, he does not think that these are just empty statues. He thinks that there is demonic power behind them that's leading people astray. Um, but he will also say, look, if you eating this meat is a stumbling block to someone else, don't eat it. Um, in other words, just in other words, it, it's kind of a, a sense of look, look. You all know not to do this. You all know that um, it's not good. It, it doesn't matter that that you can. They, there's no real god there. It's a demon, and, and the sacrifice doesn't mean anything to a demon. Just eat the meat if you want to eat the meat. 
But at the same time, you know that, but there might be new believers who don't know that. There might be people outside of the faith who, who, um, who see you eating this meat and, and think that you're then participating in, in the worship of this God. And if it's, if it's, if it's going to cause any kind of problem, if it's going to create any kind of issue for the church, don't do it. So in other words, he says, yes, you know that this is okay, but you also know that, that you have other considerations to make. It's not just about your rights and your freedoms. It's about what is best for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Which is why he then will go into chapter, into chapter 9 and he'll, he'll talk about how he, as an apostle, sets aside what he considers to be his rights. Uh, and so that's one. And then in verse chapter 12, verse 21, he'll write about, not verse 21, verse 1, um, right now concerning spiritual gifts, Brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So he's going to talk now about the spiritual gifts, and this, of course, gets into the famous uh, depiction of the body of Christ and the chapter 13 about love, and and it's it's wonderful, and I'm not going to talk about it much because I'm going to preach on it on Sunday, and I don't want to give the game away, but um, but obviously they are concerned about uh, the spiritual gifts and how they manifest and what that means, and there, there does appear to be some... Um, some belief amongst the Corinthian Christians that that like certain spiritual gifts give you give you special status. Uh, we'll talk about that more on Sunday, and he addresses that. Um, so so these are kind of the main issues they've written about. Um, and Paul writes in response to them, but he also writes to them because he has heard from a group of people he just references as Chloe's people. We don't really know who they are or who Chloe is. Um, but they told him that there are divisions among the church, serious divisions, uh, along socioeconomic lines. So these aren't these aren't theological divisions. These are these are social divisions, and this is a big deal because just like we do today, most of the people in the ancient world only associated with people of similar status. And so to, to hear in general that you've got like this mix of slaves and merchants and skilled workers and upper class citizens all calling each other brother and sister and eating together at one table, it would have been very scandalous. But it's also the thing that sets Christianity apart because it is a living embodiment of the kingdom of God. It is a recognition that in Christ we are all one that none of us is any better than any of the others, that we are all servants of Jesus. It is a recognition that, that in the kingdom, all of these divisions we make amongst ourselves, all of these social and economic statuses we put so much stock in, they all go away in the kingdom. They don't matter in the slightest. And so when Paul hears that they are actually still embracing these divisions, he's horrified because he's thinking, look, if you are, if you are allowing yourself to be divided along those lines... You are abandoning the kingdom of God in the first place. You're saying that, that none of what Jesus did matters because you're just living like you always did before.
Now, this has theological implications, but there are also practical implications. When we embody the kingdom of God by ignoring socioeconomic divisions, we change the world. Literally. Time and time again, research has shown that the, the most effective way to lift someone who lives in chronic poverty out of poverty is for a wealthy person or at least a, a middle class, you know, someone of wealthier, wealthier than they are uh, to befriend them. That is what makes them, that's what's most likely to help them in the longest term, to have a friendship with someone who is better off than they are. One of the things I, I, I have observed and, and really internalized a lot during my time in ministry is that most people who do not ever associate with or talk to people who live in true, deep, chronic, crushing poverty simply have no idea how to help them. That includes all of our politicians, by the way. All of the the political solutions people put forward, they're complete nonsense. All of the options that people talk about as far as what we should do as a, society, as a society, most of them will not address the root of the problem. I have met so many people in my life who are living in chronic poverty, always just one crisis away from homelessness, sometimes actually outright homeless, sometimes they've been homeless before and managed to crawl their way out of it. And, and, and many of these people, almost all of these people actually, you know, if, if I were to give them $100,000 today, they would be in the exact same place a year from now that they are before I give them that money. Giving them money won't help them in the long run. It, it will give them a short-term boost, but it won't help them in the long run because there's more to the problem than just a lack of money. The entire way that they approach the world is different. The, the, the mindset is different. The, there is a, there, there's actually kind of a lack of problem-solving skills. There's, a, there's not an understanding of how to take that money and, and use it wisely so that it doesn't just run out. Uh, and it's because they've got this mindset of, well, I've got this money, I've got to spend it, I've got all these needs I've got to meet. Um, they don't know how to prioritize. There's, there's a, a whole laundry list of problems. I can think of people who, in churches I've worked at in the past, who we, we would help them get jobs. Um, and they would lose the job within a week because they didn't know how to hold down a job. No one had ever taught them how to, how to be a, a good employee. No one had ever taught them how to do that. They didn't know how to do that. And so they would lose their job. So even getting them a job didn't help. And, you know, you and I, we, we have this totally different understanding of, of how to solve our problems. As an example, I remember one person, one, one lady who we had a connection to in our church who, who lived in this really incredibly impoverished area near our church. And, and I remember one morning I came into work and I was talking with a co-worker who said, you know, hey, last night this woman, she called me 
at like 11 o'clock at night to tell me that someone was breaking into her house. And I was like, why are you calling me? Call the police. Why would, what do you think I'm going to do? Um, but her life experience had taught her that you don't call the police when you're in trouble. So she called the church. Which on the one hand is really beautiful and touching, but on the other hand, it's kind of horrifying, right? I mean, we couldn't have done anything to help her in that situation. But the police could have. You know, we, we, it's lovely that she thought to call the church for help. It's deeply troubling that she didn't think to call law enforcement to protect her from someone trying to break into her home. She was okay in the end, by the way. Um, but you see the incredibly different mindset, the incredibly different thought process that people who live in, in chronic, deep poverty have compared to those of us who don't. The one success story I know of is a man who, who lived in that type of situation, was kind of always one, one step away from homelessness. Um, but he joined one of our small groups. And so when, when the catastrophe came when his wife kicked him out of his apartment and his wife was not mentally stable, so this was not like he did something to deserve it. It was, it was really that his wife had an episode and, and booted him out and locked him out. Um, he, he probably would have lost his job that week because he wouldn't have been able to, have, uh, to get into work. He wouldn't have been able to, to stay nearby. He didn't have a car, didn't have any kind of place to stay. Um, but his small group stepped up. He stayed with people from the church who opened up their home to him. They sat him down. They, they decided they were going to help him get an apartment. And they realized very quickly, um, he didn't, they asked him how much he could afford in rent. He just said he didn't know. He didn't know how to make a budget. He didn't know how to look at his income and see what, how much money he actually had coming in and what he could afford. So they sat him down and they taught him how to make a budget. They taught him how to evaluate his income and his expenses so that he would know what he could afford. They taught him how to set money aside and save. Now, this man is in his 50s when this happens. No one's done this with him before in his entire life. And to most of you listening to this, that's going to sound impossible, but the reality is it happens. And so when we talk about Paul's insistence that that you need to have this mixing of people from different backgrounds and different economic statuses and all this. The reason is because it really does transform the world in a literal way, a literal, tangible way into the kingdom that God wants it to be. That's why it's such a problem for him that the wealthy are separating themselves from the poor. When Paul talks about caring for the poor, when Jesus talks about caring for the poor, he's not just talking about funding social programs so that someone else can do the work. He's talking about you specifically, individually. Forming relationships with people who will benefit from being your friend. Now that's a tough thing. And I, I'll be the first to admit, I don't do that. I should. But we all have to be thinking about how we do that. Because what we are called to do is to embody the kingdom of God in the way we live our lives. And that really is what a lot of 1 Corinthians is about. How do we embody the kingdom of God 
in the way we live our lives. And I'll leave you with that. Next week, we'll be back with a podcast on 2 Corinthians.